You're listening to a sermon from crckulaman.org. Thanks, Miller and Will. I'm going to bring us the Bible reading today. And some of the more you more observant ones might recognise part of this passage we actually did two weeks ago. So it's not a mistake. Remember I said I was going to have another crack at it, like round two of that passage? So this is round two. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 20. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly malignant the way. So Paul led, left them. He took the disciples with him and had, to discuss, had, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that have touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving evil spirits tried to invoke the name of of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who who had this evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. This... When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living out in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed they had, what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drenchmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know my friends that we receive a good income from the business and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people who here in Ephesus and in practically who, the, the whole province of Asia. He says that God's made by humans and are so no gods at all. There is danger not only that the, our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goodness, 
goddess Artemis will discredit it at end the goodness yes. goddess helps herself who is worshipped throughout the province. province of Asia and the whole the and the world will be robbed of the divine majesty when they heard this they were furious and began chanting great is Artemis of the Ephesians soon the whole city was in uproar thank you very much Miller and Will good on you for getting up and sharing that scripture with us all right, so uh, who likes to watch the occasional Marvel movie? Yeah, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange, all right. Doctor Strange is a man ruled by idols. Doctor Strange, he's a brilliant neurosurgeon, but he has a car accident and his, his precious hands, you know, the tools of his trade, they're damaged and he's unable to continue his career. And so he becomes a broken man. He spirals downward because he, his career is his identity and his purpose for living was, was based on this title that he had, this position that he has. Uh, his ability to heal people and save lives and do amazing things. Dr Strange is a man of science, of rational thinking, of knowledge and, and these things are his idols. They're the things he, he, he uh, shapes his life around and finds hope and meaning and purpose in. They rule and govern his life and, and give it structure. But he spirals downward because now he has he, lost his ability to do this. And so he hears about someone who's been impossibly healed of a severed spinal cord. And so he goes and finds uh, the, the, the mystical spiritual guru who, who had helped uh, that, that man be healed. And he, he visits this, this guru and she starts talking to him about spiritual matters and, and supernatural healings and he rejects it all as, as outright nonsense. And then she kind of does this powerful kind of spiritual kung fu kind of thing and, um, and he's like, whoa, you know, what did you just do? And his eyes are open to this whole new spiritual reality. And so then... He takes hold of this spiritual stuff as his new idol and he begins uh, training diligently to learn how to use this same spiritual power that she has. And this spiritual power now becomes his, his saviour, his hope, his God, his idol. And he, he looks to it, not just for the ability to heal his hands, but to become a someone again. Someone who has, has power and, and control over his life and over living. So Dr. Strange is a man ruled by idols. And today we're going to have a little bit of a think about that. Uh, when idols rule, when idols rule our life. Uh, in Acts chapter 19 that we've just heard, we actually we see people who are ruled by idols. We see them trusting in idols both of a supernatural origin but also idols of their own human making. What are idols? Well, basically, they're whatever we trust in or look to for, for power, 
control, approval, comfort. These are the things we look to to make our life safe and good. And so idols could be called false gods. That would be another, another word for idol, false gods. And there's always an element of worship involved in, in, in this. They could be of a, a sort of a more supernatural or spiritual origin. So, for example, people in our world today put their trust in things like psychics or um, psychic readings or astrology or star signs or crystals or kind of angel worship or, or various spiritual philosophies that are out there. Or maybe they could be false gods of a more human uh, making, ourselves. We're often the biggest false god we put in our own lives, aren't we? ourselves. Maybe it could be other people or money or position or a title or some sort of education or qualification. Maybe the things we own. Really it's probably a bit of an arbitrary distinction to say spiritual false gods or human false gods, isn't it? Because because really they're, they're both all bound together. Uh, because I think for every, every idol in our life that's seemingly of our own making, of human origin, you know, there's this shadowy counterpart, this, this evil entity fostering brokenness and fostering that idolatry in our life. Because, of course, when, when idols rule our life, Jesus doesn't, does he? In Acts chapter 19, we see two uh, groups of people. We've got the Jewish exorcists. They're, they're the seven sons of the high Jewish high priest named Sceva. We've got that group of people. Then we've got this other group of people. We've got these believers who see what happens, who, who hear about what happens, and, and so they, they uh, confess uh, some of the, the things that they've done wrong and they go and burn their scrolls of magic. There's two two different groups of people that we're going to look at today in relation to idolatry. So I want you to just imagine this this team of Jewish exorcists. They're being called in to minister to this man who has an evil spirit. And these travelling ministry workers obviously have a, a bit of a collection of ways they try and draw out evil spirits from people and maybe they're having a bit of a tough run of it that day with that particular man and uh, so they attempt to add the name of Jesus to their repertoire of incantations and spells to kind of cast out these evil spirits but unlike Paul who also uses the name of Jesus to cast out evil spirits they don't actually trust in Jesus they haven't actually submitted their life to Jesus as Lord and the evil spirit knows this and says, well, mate, like, Jesus I know and Paul I know. But who the heck are you? And to their ultimate humiliation and, and our amusement, I guess, this, this one man with an evil spirit leapt on them, mastered them all and so overpowered them. And they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And it, it sounds like an event that would, would happily uh, belong televised on a, a 1v7 world wrestling entertainment show. But, but what is the source of their power in this, in this scenario? Well, it's, it's spiritual idols, isn't it? And they would normally be drawing on just the same polluted well of spirits and gods as the wider 
uh, cultural town in, in the town of Ephesus. And of course, as, as if you were here a couple of weeks ago when I first preached on this, we, we know that Ephesus was a town that was known as a centre of the, the magical arts. And there was even Jewish use of magic and charms and, and sorceries, and etc. And so here these, these seven uh, Jewish men, they were attempting to use the name of Jesus as a source of power, as a bit of an add-on to other spiritual sources. But the truth was, Jesus wasn't really their power source. They attempted to use his power, but Jesus was only kind of one spiritual tool in their in their repertoire. So there were sort of the, the spiritual idols that they were drawing on for power. But then I think they were also drawing on some of their own man-made human idols. I, I think they probably made an idol of their own ability, their, their reputation. I mean, they were sons of a high priest. I mean, when you're a Jew, that's, that's a pretty up there kind of um, reputation to have. That's pedigree, isn't it? Apparently, there was never actually a high priest named Skeva, though. <laughs> so this would, attempt, this would seemingly be a made-up claim, uh, an attempt to kind of build their own reputation and prestige uh, as a basis for their power and their ministry as exorcists. And I get a sense that as, as travelling ministry they, they would have had maybe an almost a celebrity status here. And so I imagine them as being, you know, really puffed up and prideful. And so, of course, the commonest idol that we make is ourselves, isn't it? Our pride, our ability, who we are, or as someone, if we achieve things. So that's our, our first group of people. But then we've got our second group of people in this story, and so in response to the beating that these seven men get, there's, there's some believers and they, they see what's happened, they hear about what's happened and they're convicted. Acts 19, 18 to 19, it says, Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practised sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. What we have here is a group of people who have, at some point, placed their faith in Jesus. They'd come to faith. They were part of the church. They were believers. But, but they hadn't fully and completely placed their trust in Jesus as their only source of power and security in life. They, they kind of held on to some of their old ways. You ever experienced that? You sort of, you know, yes, Jesus, but there's this, this old patterns of thinking or behaving or security in your life. And so they, they've been holding on to these old customs, these old sources of power, and, and they were uh, continued to practice magic. They continued to look for power in sorcery and spells and in charms and in rituals to seek security and safety from evil spirits and, and curses by worshipping the gods of the city, which would have been the goddess Artemis. They kind of had a foot in two spiritual camps. Camp Jesus, Camp Artemis. Kind of a bit of Jesus to cover that need over there, a bit of goddess worship to cover that, that need over there. 
maybe a few magic incantations to deal with that problem or curse and maybe a few prayers now to deal with that other, that other thing that's going on. But this crazy event, their eyes are opened. They get a revelation. It's all Jesus or it's no Jesus. There's no half-half picking and choosing bits of Jesus to suit your own particular needs. It's no spiritual smoothies. You humbly submit your life in its entirety to Jesus to, to receive his power and his protection. And they realise Jesus isn't a spiritual genie to be manipulated for their own purposes or gain. And they realise they've been misusing the name of Jesus and they've been allowing idols to rule their life. And so in an act of, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, they burn their scrolls that contain their, you know, their recipes, their procedures, their spells, their incantations. And these scrolls are worth over 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you know how much that is? Probably not. It's a lot. The equivalent of about 50,000 days wages. So in Australia, in the year 2022, if you kind of worked out what the average wage is and, and converted and kind of did the maths, and I kind of did the maths, which sometimes the maths isn't great, but I think this is a good estimate, would say that these scrolls were worth over $17.7 million. They were holding on to old stuff that had great influence and great value in their life, but it was an idol. And they had a revelation that they needed to let go of it. So in reflecting on these two uh, groups of people, for us, do idols, do idols rule our life? And how can we be free of them? Now for the people of Ephesus, it was, it was obvious or clear what they worshipped. Their idols were, were pretty out there. They, they made little silver shrines of them. Um, the riot at the end of chapter 19 is started by the silversmith and the trade union because Paul was going around telling people that gods made with human hands are not gods. Um, and you'll notice there was a high amount of anger and passion when the validity of these idols were challenged. So it was, it was quite clear what they worshipped. Um, for us, maybe it's more subtle. I don't know. As I was putting this sermon together, I thought, yeah, maybe the, the, the idols in our culture are a bit more subtle. And then as I've reflected on um, it being sort of the Halloween weekend and having been shopping a bit this week and being in the shops, I'm like, actually, maybe our idols aren't so subtle. Actually, maybe they're even more out there, front and centre, even more than this. You know, maybe the, 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 the link between the idol and the, 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 the shadowy, uh, evil, uh, death-bringing darkness that is behind them is actually even more obvious than it would have been in Ephesus. I mean, we don't have pretty silver statues that we're, we're, we're purchasing and putting in our homes. I, I mean, we just have the demon... <laughs> We just have the goblin, the witch, the, the whatever it is. It is so clear. You know, I woke up this morning and, and there was one of the news reports was of um, in South Korea. There was a, a massive big Halloween festival in one of their cities. 
and over 150 people were crushed to death in a stampede. Now they're celebrating Halloween and, and there was a, a stampede and all these people have, have died and many have been injured. And um, you know what they think started the stampede? Word that there was a celebrity in a night spot somewhere. Idol of celebrity. <laughs> so maybe, maybe our idols are more front and centre and maybe we're just used to them and, and sort of glaze over, but they're there. What about for us, though, as people sitting here fellowshipping together today? How, how do we know if we allow idols to rule our life? I think if you think, well, you know, I'm a believer and I know better than to turn objects into idols... I know better than to try and gain power and, and, and control in life in, in unrighteous ways. You know, Jesus is my Lord. I know better than all that. I don't celebrate Halloween. I just want to challenge you to maybe, maybe think again. Maybe just think this through a little bit more. You know, I, I ran into someone recently who had attended a conference in Israel. Um, and by all means, it, it was probably pretty spectacular event. I mean, Israel, hundreds of, or maybe thousands, I don't know, lots of people worshipping together at this conference in Israel. Um, but apparently there are over 100 harps playing in worship. And I, harps are quite nice, aren't they? Yes, harps are beautiful. Um, they had harps, over 100 harps playing in worship. And they had some uh, shofars. Now, now, shofars is in the ram's horn used in the Old Testament Jewish worship, not chauffeurs as in like the drivers so they didn't have like people driving cars at the conference they had the ram's horns chauffeurs um, and, and so they had had these as part of their worship service but but what what struck me was was how impressed this christian was by the use of these these biblical instruments and, and this person really uh, felt that by bringing back those instruments to to church worship by bringing back these biblical instruments to church worship um, there, there was a greater power, a greater spiritual power, a greater spiritual anointing that was present. And, and this person noted that by comparison, they thought other conferences they'd been to had kind of less spiritual clout, less spiritual power somehow. And I, I got nothing against harps, but, but I think this is a classic example of Christians turning things into idols, seeing these as the source of spiritual power other than the presence of Jesus. I mean, we could worship by banging sticks together and it wouldn't matter if our heart is in the right place. Are Christians, you know, ruled by the need for power and control in their life? I, I think we actually often are and, and, and just... I mean, I won't sort of bang on about this, but, but think about the response of many Christians during COVID when they were required to, to wear masks or stay home. It was quite a strong response against maybe others having power and control in our life. We, we want to be in control of our life. We want power over our life. We want to determine what we do and when we do it. It's, it's, it's a thing for us. 
We make an idol of, of power and control in our life. And, and I, I was reflecting this week on maybe some ways I've made an idol of people. You know, we make an idol of other people. We, you know, I, I think of people and relationships that I've, I've sought a, a, a personal sense of belonging or identity or acceptance. You know, if that person values me, well, then I'll feel good about myself. You know, we seek security in relationships. I'll feel safe when I'm kind of with that group or when that person, um, you know, is part of my life. I'll feel safe and secure. And, and so I'm trying to gain from them and, and their acceptance of me what I, what I should have gone to Jesus for. And, of course, there's a temptation, isn't there, for, for any of us to, to make ministry or serving others an idol. I mean, how often do we think, you know, if I'm just friendly enough, and likeable, and if I just care for others enough, they're going to accept me. They're going to value me. And so doing good things for people can become an idol in our life. Or what about money? I mean, that's a big one, isn't it? Money can so easily be an idol for us. I mean, and you don't have to have lots of it for it to be an idol. In fact, sometimes I think the less you've got, the more it is an idol in your life. I think over the last few years with uh, some of the, the, the changes and the instability with Steve's work and career and, and my work and, and, and stuff, for employment as well, we've, we've really had to learn to trust him in that area of life and to let go of our sense of control and, and ownership over those things. There's some good insight from Timothy Keller that, that, that can help to clue us in to idolatry in our lives Have a listen to this quote from Timothy Keller. If you ask for something that you don't get, you may become sad and disappointed, but then you go on. Those are not your functional masters. But when you pray and hope for something and you don't get it and you respond with explosive anger or deep despair, then you may have found your real God. What was the response What response did the city of Ephesus make to Paul's preaching that their gods weren't really gods? What was their response? Anger. They rioted. It was deep, deep emotion and anger when uh, their idolatry was pinpointed. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. And, And what that means in practice is that anything that absorbs your heart and your affections and your imagination more than God is probably an idol. So pay attention to your emotions and your inner thought world, your imaginings, that kind of fantasy world that buzzes around in there. You know, when you play out different scenarios and situations in your head, when you think about what others might say or do, or what you might say or do, pay attention to that inner head and heart world because where there's strong emotion, where there's excessive thinking to the point of rumination, as in you can't stop thinking about it, you might be ruled by an idol in that area of your life. Second thing, another quote from Timothy Keller. A counterfeit idol is any, any uh, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, 
your life would feel hardly worth living. So the second way we can determine if we might have an idol in our life is can you walk away? Can you walk away from it? Paul in chapter 18, which we haven't looked at, but he was preaching to the Jews in Corinth and they didn't like what he was saying and they protested and they scorned him. And you know what he does? He doesn't just keep on hammering away at them. He doesn't stay there. He, he shakes the dust off his clothes and says, well, fine, your blood be on your hands. I'm going to go over and, and, and sow my efforts in, in elsewhere, my, my energies into the, the Gentiles. And he walked away. Same thing happens in chapter 19 in Ephesus. He's preaching to the Jews. They have a go at him and and the followers of Jesus and so he leaves. He rents a lecture hall somewhere else and begins preaching there. He could walk away. And so if you can't let go of that thing, that person, that relationship, that position you hold, that group you're part of, if it is so significant to you that you will hold on to it, whatever the cost to you or your family, to others in, in church, maybe. And it's probably an idol. What are the consequences of living with idols, apart from the fact that Jesus is not honoured and put in his rightful place? I mean, I'll, we'll take that one as a given. What are the consequences? Another movie, The Wizard of Oz. It's a, quite an old one, but I'd say we've all seen it, haven't we? The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy goes to visit the Grand Wizard Oz. She's with the Tin Man, the Lion, she's got a little dog Toto. And of course Dorothy desperately just wants to get home. That's her desperate desire. The Tin Man wants a heart. The Lion is craving courage. I think that's, that's right. It's been a while since I've seen the movie, but I think that's what it is, isn't it? And so they're going to the wizard for help. They're going to the wizard to provide their deepest longings. They just know that if they can get to the wizard, he'll make everything right in their life. He'll give them everything they need. He's an idol to them. He's a god to them. And when they finally get an audience with with him, amidst all the kind of the green light and the smoke and the, the kind of loud, booming voice, You've seen the movie Toto the dog. He goes over to where there's a curtain and he drags this curtain open and and behind it is an old man operating the whole show. He says, you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And and as Dorothy realises with shock and disbelief that, that why, you're just a man. She discovers that this grand, powerful, mighty wizard of Oz is is just a man. What a disappointment for Dorothy and for the team because suddenly this person who, who seemed to have the power to make everything right in their life is uncovered as a sham. He's weak. He's not who they seem to be. And when you make idols of, of people, When you trust in things, they will let you down. Eventually, you'll come up against their weaknesses and their failings and you will end up feeling hurt, neglected, maybe condemned or judged. Maybe you'll feel offended 
used or manipulated because these things have been idols to you and they've let you down. And so those emotional responses, again, they're, they're indicators that you might have an idol problem in your life. So whatever we make an idol, we're ruled by. So if comfort is your idol, is comfort your idol? <laughs> I think it's everyone's idol, if we're honest. If comfort is your idol, you know what? You're going to be ruled by stress and demands. You, you, you might be continually bored or always chasing after the, the better thing, the next thing. Oh, if that would have happened, then I'll, I'll be right. Then I'll feel good. If approval is your idol, you're going to be facing rejection everywhere. And your life will be full of fear. If control is your idol, you're going to be ruled by uncertainty and indecision or anxiety. If power is your idol, you're going to face humiliation and anger. These idols are never going to bring you the the approval, the comfort, the control and the power that you're looking for. Only your heavenly Father who's full of mercy and love and kindness towards you can truly bring those things you crave and you need. So how do we live free of idols? Well, humility. Humility is how we break the power of idols in our life. Humility breaks the power of idols and it releases the power of Jesus in your life. It truly does. Because if you have a look at Paul in this story, he's the ultimate humble servant of God. I, I mean, there's, there's no prestige in his ministry. Think about it. He's part of a weird sect called the Way. People in the synagogue, his, his, his fellow Jews, they say bad things about him. He works hard as, as a tent maker to support himself. And there's this beautiful image in this passage of, of, of Paul working hard with his hands. And he's, he's sweating and he wipes the sweat on these uh, cloths, these sweat rags, and it's these, these dirty filthy, smelly sweat rags that somehow bring healing to those who touch them. And I elaborated a bit on what I thought was going on there in the last sermon. But, but this is not, this is humble work. This is not glorious or, or showy or, or amazing work. This is not a prestigious healing ministry where he kind of bowls on into town, preaches up a storm, does some amazing miracles and then, and then goes on again like maybe the seven sons of Sceva, he faithfully preaches day in, day out, until all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, hear the word of God. He's praying for people continually, healing them, setting them free from oppression. It is hard and humble work that Paul uses to bring the kingdom of God to people. And there's, there's really nothing in it for him. In fact... If we were to skip over to chapter 20, there's this amazing, amazing gem of a, a passage. And he's called for the Ephesian elders. And he, he wants to say something to the elders of the church here in Ephesus. And he says this in chapter 20. He says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents 
You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught publicly from house and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Does he have comfort? No. Approval of other people? Not often. Control? None. Personal power? Zero. What's the source of power in Paul's life? It's just Jesus. And he has learnt that through these hard times, he's learnt that God's power comes to full capacity in his life through humility and weakness. And I bet you can guess what passage I'm going to quote next. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 to 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, he says, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships, and in persecutions, and in difficulties, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul has access to the power of Jesus because he trusts in him alone as a source and provider of power. And so the only way the power of Jesus can be at full capacity in Paul's life is in humility and in weakness. And so the only way you can conquer idols whether they're human, whether they're supernatural ones, is through humility and weakness. And that's what the believers in this passage realised. They were convicted that they had idols in their life. They'd been looking for power in all the wrong ways. And so they confessed what they'd been doing. They made a public statement of repentance by burning their books. It was a very decisive action to cut the ties of those idols and cut off those illegitimate sources of power. Books were worth millions, cost them on many levels, and it required great humility. But do you know what happened when they did that? 1920, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Church, we need to be humble. We need to repent and confess of of those idols that we've been holding on to. The the bits of other things that we look to for security and approval and control, it's not Jesus. In the context of human repentance, humility and confession of weakness, there's an increase in the power and the effectiveness of the word of God. The the, the word of God flourishes in that sort of atmosphere, in that climate, in that sort of soil, the soil of humility. And so, church, if you have idols in your life, don't let them remain hidden. 
Ask God to show them to you. Find someone you trust and confess to them. It's a practice we don't do a lot of in our church. Expression is it? Confession. Maybe your prayer triplet, your prayer group, or some other trusted friend. You can talk to them about these things that have been holding uh, control and power in your life. And they can pray with you. Confess your need for Jesus. Turn away from idols. Put Jesus fully in charge of your life. Because we want to see the word of God flourish in this place, don't we? Maybe you need to make a public statement of turning to Jesus. You might not have scrolls containing magic to burn, but, but perhaps you need to stand up in front of others and declare, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Jesus, you can have all of me. Do you need to make that public statement? You know, I'm trusting and depending on the power of Jesus over and above all other powers or privileges in this world. Do you need to make that public statement? Do you know what that public statement is called? Baptism. Order baptism. Maybe there are people here today and you need to make that public statement of confession and repentance and turning to Jesus and that you are going to cast aside all other idols, all other um, ungodly things and that your life is fully and wholly devoted to Jesus. That's you. If it's time for you to get baptised, come and talk to me about it. I'll tell you a bit more. I'm excited to watch and see what God will continue to do through us as a people whose hearts are humbly submitted to his power, his control, his approval, his comfort, his joy, his love. So let's be a people who turn away from our idols and turn and face Jesus. Let's pray.